the diversity committees are falling behind because they're still talking about how do we approach this? How mm -hmm. do we talk about this without offending people? Like, no, you need to talk. These, these conversations need to happen. And most of all, like hire people, like hire mm -hmm. more black people. See how, see how much it changes once you have five people in leadership who are mm -hmm. black, who are immigrants, who are um, women, who are uh, indigenous. Mm -hmm. Hire all these people who you want to help, put them in leadership positions and make sure they're like actually included in the conversations that they feel safe talking about these things. Hello world and welcome to Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Tiago Arzua, a PhD student at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who is currently studying the effects of alcohol in the developing brain. Beyond his academic pursuits, he is an early career policy ambassador for the Society for Neuroscience, and he is also a co-organizer of Black in Neuro, a hugely successful initiative launched in the summer of 2020. I'm excited for him to share his journey from Curitiba, Brazil, to Tampa, Florida, and then to Milwaukee, Wisconsin with us today. But let's start from the very beginning. Tiago, what's your story? First of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's really exciting to be on a podcast after listening to so many podcasts for so long. <laughs> um, I was born and raised in a city called Curitiba, which funny enough, it's not, it's still the biggest city I've ever lived in. Mm -hmm. uh, it has about 2 million people in the South of Brazil. Uh, it's kind of chilly, not as chilly as Wisconsin, but still cold. <laughs> um, uh, I think around like the age of four, like I, as soon as I consciousness hit, I remember liking science. Mm -hmm. um, I still have my first microscope that I bought when I, like my mom bought me when I was a kid. Uh, mm -hmm. My first telescope, my Lego sets of like the space missions. So mm -hmm. I think science was always there. Um, and at some point during high school, I decided to come to the U.S. because I knew very little about it, but I knew the research here was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So I moved to the U.S. and started research literally, I think, a month and a half into my undergraduate career. Well, um, really? Yes. I didn't even know that was possible. Uh, How did you even find that opportunity? <laughs> it was very, very random. It's a whole story in and on itself. But okay. I started doing synthetic organic chemistry, um, which I thought was what I wanted to do most like. I was very in love with organic chemistry from a young age. Um, and I realized that that was not what I wanted to do. And I moved to neuroscience after, I think, a year and a half in that lab and haven't stopped since. Um, did two different labs while I was in undergrad and now I'm in a stem cell lab. So we do stem cell modeling, so disease modeling with stem cells. And we use uh, something called brain organoids mm -hmm. to model fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, fetal alcohol syndrome is a whole universe of it in and on itself. And the cerebral organoids are also another universe. So they, they kind of collided. Um, the, the organoids are like a cool technology that allows us to have like these mini brains. Mm -hmm. uh, they're like about the size of a pea and they have like all these complex structures within it. Um, and fetal alcohol syndrome is this multifaceted disease that has societal issues, uh, economic issues. So it kind of brings together a little bit of everything. To be fair, my research is really unfocused when I go to sense. Um, we do a little bit of everything in my lab and I do a little bit of everything in science in general. Okay, and what exactly are you hoping to understand about fetal alcohol syndrome? Is it the molecular pathways? 
So fetal alcohol syndrome is one of those diseases that we already know the answer for. It's mm. as simple as just don't drink. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've known that since Aristotle, like we've known that since ancient Greece that uh, drinking during pregnancy is not good. And it's still a disease, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that there are societal or socioeconomic pressures um, around that. So we know that there are people who don't know this. There are people who are pregnant and don't know and they therefore don't stop drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also people who cannot stop drinking because they have uh, abuse disorder. So there's multiple ways to just phrase this around like, okay, just don't drink and that's it. But we know mm-hmm. that it's more complex and kind of that's where we enter. We want to try, try to understand exactly what is going on in the brain mm-hmm. uh, yeah. if it is exposed to ethanol. Um, the hope is that we can not just cure, but somehow preventive. So we know that prenatal care is like this whole amazing thing that we develop over the years and that's how we uh, curb child mortality so much. Um, mm. That could be just another part of prenatal care. So if we know a fetus has been exposed to ethanol, maybe we can develop a pill, some supplementation. Uh, mm. If we know what's going wrong, maybe we can intervene early enough. There's also the testing different therapeutics after the damage is done. So we know that it, what my research shows a lot and other people's research shows that it's a lot of cell death that ethanol mm-hmm. causes. So if maybe we can replace those dead neurons with um, different therapies after the child is born, um, that would be like a different end goal. Um, my lab doesn't work on like the end goals itself. We're very much a biology lab. So we're looking at genes and proteins expressions, not necessarily like uh, therapies for children, mm-hmm. but we do hope that it improves those, those things in the end. Is that something that you think you'll have time to explore a therapeutic arm at the very least before you wrap up your PhD very soon? So I'm going to try to be as vague as possible so no one scoops me, but we did, <laughs> That's fair. Uh, we did test a Chinese herb mm-hmm. that my PI was very interested in. It has like some super cool results that we've seen so far. Sweet. Um, so we are testing like different therapies by ourselves. Mm. Um, I don't think that one Chinese herb is going to cure the whole thing. I think it's much more complex than that. Um, But it is uh, interesting that we are able to test those things. And we're also just kind of like learning. Uh, This project came very recently in our lab. Mm. So we're still learning a lot about this field. Um, There's still a lot of like small technical details that we still have, have to figure it out. Okay. Well, I mean, that's all very, very exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about the timeline that you have? When did you start? When are you thinking of finishing and what your next steps might be? So I started my PhD in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember 2016? We thought that was a bad year. Um, <laughs> Good point. I started there and it was a funny journey because I started, I joined this lab mostly because I love cerebral organoids. And I think they're the coolest thing ever yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. um and back when i started there was like 20 papers about these things so mm-hmm. like i could like cite every single paper from the top of my head because no one was doing this because they were mm-hmm. firstly developed in 2013 um since then obviously the field has exploded now everyone's doing organoids for different yeah. things mm-hmm. but um back then it was very much like this new like unexplored field and it was really cool to be in that part mm-hmm. um so I started in 2016, joined this lab, I think 2017, um, like March of 2017. And I think I'm going to finish sometime next year, hopefully mm-hmm. around like summer, fall time. So 2021. 
Um, mm -hmm. our, our school's average is around that time too, like a, a normal PhD in the US, or at least my school usually takes about five years total. Okay, that's reasonable. I've heard of absolute horror stories where people end up staying for seven and a half, eight years, and I can't even imagine what it sounds like absolute agony. <laughs> and you're hoping to pursue an academic career, or what's the plan right now? Um, and I guess we're going to go right into it. So I am I'm still an immigrant here as an immigrant. Mm -hmm. There's only so many things I can do. Um, mm -hmm. So a postdoc seems to be the next logical step from that like, very pragmatical point. Um, mm. So in the US, you, if you want to stay in STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math, um, you have an extension of your visa for about three years. Okay. Um, so I, I have like free three years after my degree is done to be here in the US working. Mm -hmm. um, I could do that in industry or in academia, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. Okay. After that, I would have to apply to a work visa mm -hmm. um, called the H-1B. Yeah. And that, um, it changes a lot because academia doesn't have a limit. They can apply for as many, like the institutions can apply for as many H-1Bs as they want, mm -hmm. or they can sponsor as many H-1Bs as they want versus industry where you, you can have all your paperwork, you can literally have the visa, but you still have to go through a lottery to get it finally approved. Mm -hmm. um, so if I do get a job in industry, my biggest fear is what happened to my friend who graduated with me college. Um, she started in an engineer position, um, loved the company. The company loved her back. She was making good money. She was like progressing in the company. Mm -hmm. And then when she finished her OPT that extra three years, mm -hmm. uh, she tried to get an H1B and couldn't. So she had to go wow. back to Brazil. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of don't want to do that. So I might just go the academic route for that reason. Okay. Um, that being said, I have a very strong feeling that everything surrounding that policy is going to change in the next few years, regardless of what happens in November. Right, right. I mean, yeah, you bring up a really good point. And it's a question that I wanted to ask you about your experiences as an international student. You've been here now for, I guess, a decade almost, having done yeah. your bachelor's and now you're working on completing your PhD. What are some of the highlights that you've had as an international student? And then we can talk about maybe some of the things you didn't really like. I think the opportunities still blow my mind. Um, mm. I don't know if it's because I was raised in a family that didn't travel as much. Um, so for context, I was raised by a single mother from Uruguay. So raised by an immigrant, becoming an immigrant. Mm. Uh, great like origin story right there <laughs> but we we went to Uruguay um, almost every year to visit my mom's my mom's family um, mm. but apart from that we didn't travel much like I didn't come to US when I was a kid um, mm. and also it was the 90s and the 2000s so like it wasn't as common to travel across the world as it is unless you had a lot of money um, so not very shelter because I was exposed to a lot of the same culture, but still shelter in a sense that like I had, I hadn't met an American, an American person until I was like in high school and someone came um, to visit. Yeah. So to me, there's still a lot of things that I'm like blown away in the US, even though I lived here for eight years. Mm -hmm. um, so just the opportunities to like travel, well, COVID, but before COVID happened, like the opportunities to travel, to meet different people from like wildly different countries. Mm -hmm. um, I have friends from, I think all the continents now in the US um, yeah. because it's kind of the hub of immigration um, that stays regardless of the current politics or not. But those opportunities and 
opportunities are not necessarily related to my job or to like academic careers, um, mm-hmm. just opportunities in life of like meeting different people, um, going different places. I went to Thailand for like a whole week during yeah. my PhD. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> that is something that I don't think I could have done in Brazil, like not just because of the economic status, but also like just, it's not something you think when, mm. while you're in Brazil. Um, so that was, that, that still is amazing to me, like how much I can do from here. Um, and then on the research side, being very practical again, there, the U.S. still is, and China will probably surpass us in a while, but it still is the country that invests most heavily on research. Mm. Um, so it's, it's amazing coming from a country that every, every three years, there's a new headline saying how Brazilian science is death and mm-hmm. the scientists in Brazil, in Brazil are amazing because they refuse to let it go. <laughs> um, but you see the difference between a country that really does care about research as a country yeah. uh, versus a country that historically doesn't care about it. Um, so those things are still like mind blowing to me, like the amount of money that's put into the, the NIH, which funds me, um, mm-hmm. the NSF and all of these are just different agencies in the US, but it's still amazing. Yeah. And some of the things that are not so great, do you have, in, I mean, you were mentioning just the challenge of securing a job, making sure that you have a place to stay even if your your company loves you and you love your company, that's not a guarantee that your position will remain available to you based off of your immigrant status. Is that something that you ever worried about? A lot. I mean, you, it um, sounds like you do. You are thinking about it for your future, but even historically speaking. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I remember I chatted with a lot of friends during what was it May uh, when we had the big H1B. Possible change and then it didn't go through. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of uncertainty. So it's a lot of, well, one executive order and I'm deported. Um, mm, wow. Not not that intense, obviously, because I'm here legally and I know my university will protect me. Mm-hmm. But one executive order and I could not apply for a job. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding, like, well. Yes, this position exists, but is it for U.S. citizens only? Um, mm-hmm. I've been sent, since undergrad, I've been sent countless, um, here you should apply for this grant, for this award, for this. Um, and I, I, I knew from the beginning that I couldn't apply because on the, on the small print, it says U.S. citizens and permanent residents only. Right. Um, so wow, it's always like... a little annoying. <laughs> Uh, it's always that feeling of like, yes, I am underrepresented and I could apply to this underrepresented grant, mm-hmm. but I'm also not a citizen. So I'm not uh, underrepresented, but too much. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have to find a perfect balance and obviously you're not it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always frustrating because um, when you're, and I guess that's a good and a bad thing, but when you're in the lab, you're not treated like an immigrant. Like mm-hmm. no one goes and like treats you differently from being yeah. from another country. Um, you feel like home most of the time. Like you feel like um, because you have that multicultural um, pot, melting pot, mm-hmm. uh, you're always uh, hanging out with Indian people, with Chinese people, with mm-hmm. South African people. You always have this like everyone's from around the world. So like yeah. every now and then you're going to have the whole like, oh yeah, no, I'm this kind of visa, not that kind of visa. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm this, but not this. Um, <sighs> and it's always like more bureaucracy, more barriers because all of these are barriers yep. um that you have to face and 
it's just extra work on top of everything, especially in a field like science where it is, it, it could be a nine to five job, but we all know that science doesn't leave your brain. For, so you're mm -hmm. thinking about science, you're trying to be as uh, objective as possible in your science. You're trying to be like all these logical dreams that we have, uh, when in reality, no, you're facing like a thousand different battles inside your head all the time. Mm -hmm. And in addition to just being science related, it's a great lead into my next question. You're also dealing with the world at large and what's happening that you see on the news and even the pandemic that's been going on for the last, I don't know, six to eight months. So I'd like to ask you about Black and Neuro. You're one of the co-organizers. It was mind-blowingly successful. And I'd love to hear the origin stories. I, I kind of already know what it is, but I'd love for our listeners to hear what inspired this week that's really spawned a number of different events in a community that now exists. Um, just because this is a podcast, I am not Black. Uh, <laughs> I am a Latino, a white Latino. I don't know. It's a whole thing. I don't know my own <laughs> genetics. Um, but I am not Black in the American sense. Mm -hmm. But... This all started, I think, this was around June when the big George Floyd protests were happening, yeah. where they, at least in Milwaukee, they died down a little bit. Um, I went to most of those protests, and I'm sure a lot of people feel this. It was like a feeling of outrage and a feeling mm -hmm. of like anger and just like a powerlessness of this still happening every single day. It's another, another person got shot. Yeah. Uh, it happened in Kenosha like two, three weeks ago. So all that feeling uh, was like with me, it was very hard to do work. And this was still like when we were, when our lab were completely shut down. Mm -hmm. um, and around that time, Angeline Dukes, our founder, posted something like, hey, when are we gonna do Black and Arrow? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because this was at the time that Black Birders and Black and Astro Week had already happened. So yeah. Black Birders Week started because of uh, the whole incident with Amy Cooper, yeah. um, which was caught on tape, which again, keeps happening. Mm -hmm. um, so all the energy was just, I feel like all the Black and Arrow organizers were feeling exactly the same way at the same time. Yeah. Uh, we all just wanted to do something. Um, so I tagged a few friends. Um, I replied to Angeline like two minutes after she tweeted that. And I think like two, three days after that, we had our first meeting, we had a yeah. Slack channel. Uh, in three weeks, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. In three weeks, we raised a lot of money. I'm not going to say specific digits, but we mm -hmm. raised a lot of money. Um, in three weeks, we organized speakers. We compensated our speakers. We got a thousand people like thanking us for like be feeling represented. Mm -hmm. um, we got people from all around the world to talk to us. Um, we had like amazing moments in our Slack channels when we we're like, oh my God, we didn't talk about disabled people. Um, mm -hmm. And we had like a whole debate on like, what are we gonna do? Like we really messed up. And mm. I think it was like the group that like, I'm not trying to like throw shade at anyone, but we handled that so gracefully. The person who called us out ended up becoming like a good friend of the Black Neuro organizers. We yeah. gave her a spotlight to talk about her own disabilities and her own experiences. Mm -hmm. um, it was just like a lot of really deep moments of like, yeah, we did mess up here. Oh no, we did really well here. Yeah. Um, and we did like, honestly, and this is a call out if you work for university or if you work for your own diversity committee, we did more in three weeks than I'd ever seen done by a diversity committee in a university. Snaps, snaps for that, <laughs> seriously. Because we were all like, oh, very passionate, very, very passionate. We were working, like I, I work mostly on the backgrounds. I don't want to be in the foreground of this for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I was working on writing Twitter threads and like 
picking journals and like doing like a lot of the content stuff that we did. Um, another on other non-black allies were working on the financial side of things. Mm-hmm. So we had people who knew um, how important it was for black people to be in the front of this conversation, but they also need help. Yeah. Um, I think the allies were like, we all very much share this feeling of like, this is not our spotlight, but this is our fight. Like yes. this is part of our fight. Um, because we all like in different ways, all, all the organizers that felt different forms of oppression, mm-hmm. um, it, whether, whether this is in science or in their own fields, um, and or in their own personal battles, but we all felt that like, okay, this is not our time to go like, well, but what about Latinos? But what about him? And like, no, this is not mm-hmm. the time for that. This is a time to help and raise those voices. Um, and it, it, it was and it is like one of the best things I've ever done during my life. Like oh. it feels so accomplished to like, it, it was the most concrete thing that I've ever done since like the protest started and Black Lives Matter took mm-hmm. off. Um, I also moved to Milwaukee in 2016 where like the riots at Sherman Park started. Wow, um, yeah. So I've, it, it feels like it was four years of we can't do anything. We're like I march multiple times and then nothing changes. And then this was like concrete. This was like people like getting paid for the job, like bringing like um, bringing like these voices up and like highlighting these people. Um, and it's not stopping anytime soon. Uh, yeah. I think all the organizers are very ambitious. So I don't know how much I'm allowed to tell, but like we have a lot of big things coming up. But, like it's very exciting to still be a part of this. I'm so excited for you just as someone who is black and in neuro being able to know that there are thousands of people out there that I can connect with so easily. If I had a question about my career and the future, about my experiences, if I just need someone to bounce ideas off of, to say, am I losing my mind because I feel this way about the situation that I read into it? And sometimes all you really need is validation. And you guys created that space. Kudos to you for that. I, I don't know if you truly know how much you changed the game. What do you think universities are actually missing? What is it about these diversity and equity and inclusion committees that are just dropping the ball? Because they obviously are. We know they are. They're failing on so many accounts. And you talked about compensation. You talked about really hammering down at the problem. But could you pinpoint some specific things that universities could do to be better at this initiative? Yeah, so to be clear, I am part of one of those committees. And I still think... um, I don't think the people in the committee are not doing their job, but there is institutional pressures that block for everything. So every time you want to send a message to the university, every time you want to change some policy, it has to go through so many hoops. And those hoops aren't people. Like it's not one person in this office doing like blocking us. Is that by the university policy guide or like policy guidelines? Mm-hmm. Um, it has to go through this, it has to go through this. So one instance, and I'll like move away from the, from the racial part of, part of it, but in the immigration side, I wanted to step, my, my university is very small and we don't have an international office. Obviously we have an international, um, what's called a school officer because we have international students, mm-hmm. um, but it's very much disorganized. So we have one person who deals with grad students, one person who deals with medical students, uh, another person deals with postdoc and another person deals with staff. Mm. So if you have questions and one person doesn't answer, you have to go through another one, another one, another one. I wanted to create, like not me, create an office, but I wanted the university to have an office. 
and I got in the attention of the president. I got in the attention of every single high person mm. and institutionally it's just not feasible for them. Like, cause I, I don't know if it's budget. I don't know if it's like a general lack of interest of other people. I know the president of the university wants this, but he, well, I don't know how much is true, but like he told me he has no power to change that. Mm. Um, okay. So we have institutional barriers all along. Um, when um, the shooting at Kenosha happened, it took a few days to get a message across. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's speaking from a small university that doesn't have undergrads, um, that doesn't have a lot of these issues. I'm very lucky. I still think like my university does a lot compared to like other universities, mm-hmm. but there's still like barriers that are in place and are not necessarily people. Committees themselves are also like, highly um, inefficient most of the time. Mm -hmm. So if we're meeting once a month and if we have a thousand things to discuss and 10 out of the 20 people don't show up to a meeting because they're here for a spot in their CV, Mm -hmm. um, like those committees are usually not um, filled with passionate people. They're filled filled with people who either want to have a service, like another bullet point in their service part of their CV or they want to pretend to be involved or they have to be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the difference between what Black Inero did and these committees is that we knew exactly how it feels to be institutionally oppressed or mm-hmm. systematically oppressed in that sense. Yeah. Um, where I feel like committees are also made by, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it, it is a lot of white women. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, it is a lot of people who are oppressed in some ways, and yes, sexism is real, mm-hmm. but it is a lot of people who are oppressed in one way, but are unable to see oppression in other ways. Mm-hmm. So I think Black and Nero was formed and led, if you see the roster, uh, out of the, I don't know the numbers, but it's mostly led by Black women. Yeah. Um, all of those so women cool. are amazing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that passion was there from the beginning. So we never had to, dis- like, we never had to discuss, like, oh, what is our brand going to look like? Mm. Oh, what are the wordings that are going to look like? Mm. Oh, should we have like a definition? No, we literally had like, oh, I just did an art. Can, can you all comment on how it looks? And we're like, yeah, just change the color. and It's great. Yeah. Um, it was very much actionable. It was very much like, I did this. Is it good? Okay, yeah. perfect. It wasn't like, can I submit a request? <laughs> then be approved for the request? To the... No, it was very much faster than that. Um, so in a way, I think the diversity, co- the diversity committees are falling behind because they're still talking about how do we approach this? How mm-hmm. do we talk about this without offending people? And like, no, you need to talk. These, these conversations need to happen. And most of all, like hire people, like hire mm-hmm. more black people. See how, see how much it changes once you have five people in leadership who are black, mm-hmm. who are immigrants, who are um, women, who are uh, indigenous. Mm-hmm. Hire all these people who you want to help put them in leadership positions and make sure they're like actually included in the conversations that they feel safe talking about these things. I I wanted to kind of see if there's anyone that you step in the footsteps of who inspires you. I've been so lucky um, with all the mentors I had Um, from, um, I'm from Curitiba, Brazil, which is a breeding ground for MMA fighters. And I promise this will make sense in a minute. Um, (laughs) I did martial arts growing up all my life. And I had like these amazing um, men in my life who were like very um, 
masculine, but never had the toxic masculinity attached to them. Um, I was raised in like dojos and like fighting pits, basically. (laughs) And it was so much respect and so much like that martiality of um, martial arts Mm. um, that when we did like every time we went out as like a group of friends, I noticed that they weren't, they weren't the guys hitting on girls. They weren't like, you know, the, the stereotype of the fighting guy. Um, Mm -hmm. So I thankfully I had amazing mentors from growing up on like sports and things like that. And then when I started my academic career, I had amazing scientists who were very much uh, in sync of, of when in sync with what was going on in the world. Mm-hmm. So the reason I started research so young was because I went to this workshop, I think the first week of college. Um, and I was the kid that sat in the back and asked like, uh, can you start research as a freshman? And this guy who was giving the workshop had the time to talk to me and like sit down and talk for an hour about like Aww. what research even was, uh, how to approach possible mentors, what to do. Um, and with all these mentors that like understand that like there are people who are excited about science, there are people who are excited about other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people who mentor me are usually the ones that I'm inspired the most. Yeah. That being said, everyone in Black and Euro inspires me every single day. Uh, we have, we have, I think possibly the most active Slack channel in the universe. We talk so much. Um, and every day is a new story. It's every day is a new, like, like I'm, it's that meme of like, I am crying every day because uh-huh. it's like really sad and but very, very positive stories. And now that the week is done and then we're like moving to bigger and better things, mm-hmm. I'm still hearing like all the, the success stories of them. Um, and I think that was one of the first times that I started to like, looking out for peers outside like my little bubble um and they all inspire me so much so all my mentors and now all my my black and neuro people Mm, that's beautiful and really nice to hear that you've had such a positive experience and since you've had such a successful experience thus far i'm wondering if you'd like to end with some words of wisdom to fellow graduate students who might be a little bit earlier on than you are right now but something that you've learned over the last couple of years that you'd like to share I think, and I've been talking to a lot of people like who started at the same time as me, um, that the first three years of grad school were definitely the worst by far. (laughs) Um, My first year was a mess and the imposter syndrome is so much more impactful and uh, damaging when you're an immigrant because you're not just like, oh my God, they're going to find out I don't belong here. They're like, my thought during like half of my first year was just like I'm gonna get deported I know it wow. this is it mm-hmm. um and I don't know if I learned anything from those years I just know that like it doesn't get easier but you do learn to deal with those feelings and you do learn to like um like you start to understand that like no one knows what they're doing first of all <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, scientists are not smarter than the general population it's just another job Excellent. um and you start to see this pattern of like the deeper you get into a field, the more humble, hopefully, it doesn't happen all with all of them, but you get humbled by your own field, but you get humbled by your own science. Mm. Um, So I'm gonna be a neuroscience PhD student and I don't know a lot about the brain. There's every Mm -hmm. now and then I see a paper and I can't read the title. I'm like, oh my, this paper is in a neuroscience journal. And it takes me like five minutes to like 
comprehend the title. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very much humbled by all my experiences in grad school so far. Like, I think um, I like the advice that I was given. I think it was in college, so like halfway through college. Mm-hmm. Um, you finish high school, or at least I finished high school thinking, I am such a smart person. I know everything. Um, and then you start college and you get destroyed by college because you meet a lot smarter people. Mm-hmm. And then you finish college, always on, like, at least I finished college on the same height of, like, I've done so much research. I was, like, published as an undergrad. So I was, like, extra cocky by the time I finished college. <laughs> From college to grad school to the next steps, I'm getting more and more humble and more and more, like, I guess, eager to learn in a very childish way of, like, oh, this is so cool. Like, now it's not anymore about, like, the publications and, mm-hmm. like, the, the metrics it, I think the more I stay in science, the, or the longer I stay in science, the more, like, like curiosity hits more of yeah. like, ooh, I wonder what's gonna happen here. Um, I don't know. It changed my mind completely because I joined grad school thinking that that's it. I'm gonna need to win my Nobel Prize. I need to publish in science by the age of thirty. Like none of that <laughs> happened. Um, I don't think it will happen. But I, I'm it much might. More like, <laughs> it might. <laughs> I am much more in tune now with like scientists or people like yeah. that one who won the Nobel Prize likes Keen. Like the one lady who won the Nobel Prize, which is not a lot of them, mm-hmm. um, might like cooking a lot. I might like, I don't know, like sports a lot. Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry for saying cooking. I realized that was a stereotype. Um, but I understand now that all of these are just people trying their best mm-hmm. uh, versus this because all you see is like how academic academia is toxic, which it is, but it's much more institutionally toxic than it is people being toxic. 